And, uh, and kids, we're glad you're here this morning. So a couple things I want you to do while, the, while I'm talking, I want you to try and listen in. And we're going to be talking about marks of immaturity. And I know that's not going to apply to any of you, but it will apply to your little brother. So I want you to listen. And as we're talking about things, I want you to try and either underline or mark or maybe draw a picture of some of the things you hear because after this, I want your parents to, this afternoon to talk to you about different ways that you feel like you need to grow and become more mature. But uh, before I do that, actually put up the picture. So Graham, throw up the picture. So, all right, so kids, I need your help. So this is, this is a family. This is two sisters. This is Brooke and Carly. And uh, Brooke is actually a little sick in this picture. But I want you to take a guess uh, which sister. So it's Carly on... My, uh, your right, the left. So Carly is this one. Brooke is this one. Which one do you think's older, Carly or Brooke? Carly looks older. She does. Now, I wouldn't ask, so you know it's a trick question. Uh, how old would you guess Brooke is? Who wants to take a guess? Step four? She looks four? Yeah, could be four. Who else wants to guess? Two? That's a pretty good guess. Um, how old do you guess Carly is? 16. That's a pretty good guess. All right. Actually, Brooke is 20 and Carly is 17. So Brooke is actually older. And she had, at the time, um, she actually passed away a couple years ago. And there's an interesting documentary on her life called Frozen in Time. And they didn't know, um, didn't, didn't know what she had. They just called it Syndrome X. And she went to Johns Hopkins and went to all these other different uh, experts to try and figure out. But she stopped growing at uh, 30 inches and 16 pounds. And then cognitively, they think she stopped developing at about the age of nine months. And so in this picture, she's 20 years old. And they, they have since kind of found they have a name for it, but still have no idea why. And you think about it, a, a, a person who stops growing and developing is really sad. Like, it's a sad thing not to, to grow. Um, but what's even sadder is something that's... So that is very rare. It's very uncommon. But what is not uncommon is for Christians. You'd have many Christians who are actually 20 years old and they still look like infants. They're still babies in the faith. And one of the reasons Paul gives us uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is because he wants us to grow, to mature, to develop. So that's actually what we're talking about. We're talking about how you can grow and become mature. And Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 16 is all about how we can grow and become, uh, become mature Christians. And we've kind of been given for the last couple of weeks this, this equation that will bring you to a place of gospel maturity. Like what do you need to get there? And it's unique gospel community, which is what verses 1 through, um, and that's 5 or 6 are about, the community you need. Then you need gospel ministry, and when you put those two together, it equals gospel maturity. And so this morning, what we're going to key in on is what does gospel maturity look like? What does it be, mean to be mature? So first thing, I'm going to walk us through the passage. We're going to highlight a couple things, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time comparing and contrasting what immaturity looks like versus maturity. All right, so let's first pick up, if you have a Bible, we're going to look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse, actually we'll start in verse 11. 
And it's a pretty, this is a complex, convoluted, tight, dense passage. So I'm going to kind of read through it and point out a couple things as we go. So, uh, and he, that's Jesus, Jesus, the risen Christ, he's seated on his throne and then he gives gifts to his church and his people. And the reason for the gifts is to help them grow and to become mature. It says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. And then here's what he gave them to do. Their job is to equip the saints, to equip them, to equip Christians. And that equip is like to prepare them, get them ready. They're going on a journey, so they need all the equipment they need so they can go. you got to equip them. And here's what you're equipping them to do. The work of service and the building up of the body of Christ. So two things, prepare them, equip them so they can do the work to serve and to worship and ministry and love and then to build up. And then what he's going to do is give you the whole goal is to be mature. And it's kind of like a maturity sandwich because he starts out in verse 13 is how to be mature. And then verse 15 picks up how to be mature. And then in the middle is verse 14 is how to not be. So you don't be immature anymore. So it's maturity, immaturity, maturity. So look at verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So first thing with maturity is things you know. To mature manhood or a mature body, that's a corporate body, a church that is mature and stable as a group. And then to the measure, the stature of the fullness of Christ, that's individual maturity so you become more like Jesus. Because that's the ultimate mark of maturity, Christ-likeness. And then here's the thing we don't want to be anymore in 14, so that we're no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, we speak the truth in love. This is how we grow. We become mature so that we are to grow up in every way. So that's the big idea. The key thing is how do you get to a place where you are mature? What Paul's call to all of us is grow up. You have to grow up. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What, what does immaturity look like? And what we're going to do is use the Bible as a mirror. James says the Bible is a mirror, and you hold it up and you can see yourselves. And we're going to try and see what does immaturity look like, so then we can then try and move to maturity. And uh, I've got a couple different ways I want you to think about it. And so I have, uh, you know, we have four kids at our house. There's six, five two and 10 months. So um, have all I'm surrounded by a flood of living demonstrations of not immaturity, but just childishness. And so uh, here's just some kind of things I've noticed uh, about children. And I will we'll break it down to a couple different categories. I want you to think about the energy they have and then the stability they need. And then we're going to look at the energy that Jesus unleashes and the, the stability he gives. But actually, before we do it, one of the sad things about uh, that I've experienced as kind of like parenthood is I've been going back to all these things that live in my mind uh, from childhood and revisiting them. And often they're not as like great as I thought they were. Like Goonies is not a good movie. And so it, it might live in your mind as something really cool. It's just not. It's, it's, um, it's amazing to me that the style of the 80s is coming back because uh, it should remind you it wasn't good then and it's not good now. And uh, one of the things that did this for is we were watching recently, one of my favorite Disney movies as a kid was Peter Pan. 
And I love Peter Pan. I mean, just the, the idea and the concept that you didn't have to grow up and you could fly. I mean, how could anything be better than flying? And uh, recently, we watched Peter Pan and it was a little, like, sad to me. Because I was watching this movie and thinking, Peter is really... I mean, if you watch the movie, he's kind of a twit. And sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, kid, so you don't say that. But he's, <laughs> he's, he's not a nice boy. He's, and then you watch it, and I, you start to feel sorry for Wendy. And maybe many of you women can sympathize with Wendy because every man in her life is a bonehead. <laughs> like her father wants her to grow up too quickly, and Peter doesn't want to grow up at all. And Wendy actually is the heroine of the story because she understands that maturity has to come, but it has to come in its proper sequence and its proper way. And so Peter Pan was one of my childhood heroes that just dissolved as we were watching the movie. <laughs> But you grow up and the gift, like what go, the maturity is both a gift that Christ gives to us and a, a task he wants us to accomplish. And we are called to have a certain sense of childlikeness, but not childishness. And so it's very important to distinguish between the two. What is healthy childlikeness as a dependent child of our Heavenly Father? And then what is childishness? So what I want to do on your sheet, just kind of walk through, here's some marks of childishness. And let's see if we recognize ourselves in any of them. But first thing about the kids, the energy they have. And the first thing is, you know, there's lots of energy. There's lots of activity, but not a lot actually accomplished. I read a couple years ago, and I don't know if any parent would dispute this. I don't know how you could prove it medically. But it was a doctor who was saying, you have the most physical, the actual physical energy surging through your body when you're three years old. Now, if any of your parents are three-year-olds, you would not dispute that. And, I mean, you could go, like, we could go back into the three-year-old class, and you know what you'll see? You'll just see kids just, like, running around in circles. Just, and why? It's, it's a tremendous amount of caloric expenditure, energy output, and then, like, what do they actually accomplish? <laughs> what, what destruction? Yes, that's what they got called. They accomplished devastation and destruction. And, uh, you know, actually the only place in town where you can go and actually see people just running um, like that is you just go to the gym, you go to Crunch Fitness and you just see people running in circles like that. And it's, you wonder, what's it actually accomplishing? Lots of energy, but what's the, what's the end? Lots of activity, what's accomplished? Another thing that's marked about kids is the, you know, the exhibitionism. And if you've ever been around children, you know one of the things they say over and over is, watch me, watch me. Hey, watch this, watch this. Look how I can jump. Look how I can twirl. I can spin. Watch me, watch me. And what's so fascinating is that's really not something we ever really grow out of. You ever heard the comedy bit by Brian Regan about the me monster? And how you go on, you like you go out to dinner with a bunch of adults, and it's just one competition of who can one up the other. Oh, you went here. Well, I went there twice. Oh, you went on this vacation to here. Well, I did this. Me, me. And he talked about how great it would be to be an astronaut because you could just drop the card. I walked on the moon. You know who can trump that? And but why are we this way? This like compulsive kind of need to insert ourselves in things. And, of course, the kind of modern thing 
that typifies this more than any other is the selfie. I mean, just think about the selfie. I saw a couple, I don't know if you saw this on the news, and this is a sad cultural commentary because of the story and the fact that this was on the news. But it was talking about the intervention that Kim Kardashian's family had to make. Because, you know, she is probably the high priestess of modern self-exhibitionism. And uh, her doctor told her she needs to get off her phone. Her phone was ruining her life. She was taking too many selfies. And uh, so they had this uh, intervention where you need to stop taking selfies. And so she's going to try. You know how many, the number, kind of the height of her trying to build her media empire, how many selfies she was taking in one day? What would you guess? You're saying it just under a thousand. A thousand. Now, in her defense, she'd say only about 20 of them make it up, and that's how many you need to get to. And so maybe some of you photographers know you need a thousand to get to. But a thousand. I mean, think about it. If you're, if you're awake for 14 hours a day, I mean, it's basically one a minute. A thousand. Samsung actually released last year, you know, because all these things, I mean, they, they keep the data, they, they know, and said your average millennial will take 25,000 selfies in their lifetime. And you think, you know, why? What is it? What is it? In one sense, children, we, we, don't, we don't grow up. It's like me, me, look at, look at me. Another aspect about the energy that children have is, have you ever noticed how addicted they are to, like, razzle-dazzle? The whiz bang. Like, if you ever watch like shows for children, I don't understand it, but it's like it's nonstop noise, flashing, things moving. It's like epileptic seizure inducing, just constant moving. And kids love it. They just need the constant stimulation. Like, have you ever been to a Chuck E. Cheese? Like, you walk in there and it's sensory overload because it's like lights and sounds and boom and things going. It's like, what, what is this? You know, the only thing that's probably comparable to Chuck E. Cheese is a casino. I mean, casinos are just like Chuck E. Cheese for adults. So maybe, maybe we actually haven't grown up too, too much. You know, addicted to the novelty, the, the stimulation. Here's one thing I've been thinking about just as we think about how we structure and the things we do at church. And I wonder... I wonder if it's not sinful not to make church boring sometimes. You know, I think one of the most underrated things in the world is boring. You know, if you think about it, there's, there's actually no beauty that can't be had if you don't pass through a little boring first. When I mean, think about the beauty to experience as like a high-level elite athlete, you don't get there without passing through a whole lot of boring, just repetitions of shooting free throws over and over with no one around. Think about the beauty to be an excellent musician. You don't get, get there without a whole lot of boring of just learning your scales, learning your notes over and over and over. Boring might be more beautiful than we think. And one of the things, we just live in a world, and it's a mark of immaturity that we constantly need the razzle-dazzle the whiz-bang. That's the energy kids have, but think about the stability they need. There's a couple of things, just think about how unstable they are. You know, we have one who's learning to walk and one who's learning to crawl, and I am so thankful that, I mean, God was very wise, because when you learn to walk, you're only about this tall. Because you know how many times a day you fall when you're learning to walk? I mean, if I fell that many times, I would sure you get the, <laughs> the worst falls are. But when you're young, 
You can fall. You need stability. You don't have physical stability. But think about intellectual stability. That's really Paul's point here in, in chapter 4, because he says that you'll no longer be children who, who, who they get tossed around by all these wind and waves of teaching. They don't have intellectual stability. And here's the thing. They can be deceived by the cunning craftiness. See, there's, there's people, there's things, there's demonic realities that are trying to, dece- to deceive and to steal things from you. And children are so gullible. They're so easy to deceive. And one of the things that learns is, you know, children don't really know how to value what should be valued. It's kind of one of the humorous things that you can get into because, like, you know, when kids are in that stage where they, like, can't, they can still interact and they're pretty funny, but they can't tell time and they, like, don't know how to count money or, you know, things like that. Um, you know, my sister, many of you met uh, when Johanna was here. She's about 16 years younger than I am. And uh, one time she, uh, so she was about three or four-ish. And uh, it was just after her birthday. And she came into my room and she was holding a fresh $20 bill. And she started popping it. And she started kind of doing this little dance with it. She says, I got more monies than you got. I got more monies than you got. And the sad thing about the state of my life at the time, so I was about 19, <laughs> she was right. <laughs> she did. That was more monies than I had. And I, and I didn't feel good about myself about it. And so I thought, I'm not going to be mocked by a three-year-old. And uh, so I literally said, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. See, you only have one monies. I got monies you don't even know about. So, really? Wait a second. And so I went into my golf bag and pulled out this little golf. It was like this felt thing that you keep like tees and knickknacks in. Poured all those out. Went to my, my car and just pulled out a, you know, a handful of pennies. Scrubbed up the pennies. Put them into the bag. It looked like a little treasure bag you'd see like in, you know, Pinocchio or something. And then kind of went and kind of tossed them out our feet and said, ha, look at that. See, so you only have one monies. But I got 25, 30 monies. And then she looked, and all of a sudden, she wasn't as impressed with her one monies as she had been. And then she, I said, but you know what I'll do? <laughs> and don't worry. I will trade you my monies for your money. And she, you will? I would be glad to do that. And I did. But... <laughs> We gave it back, and it was a valuable lesson. And, uh... <laughs> but you, you know, the thing to think about is they're so easily deceived where certain things get, and, and they don't know how to appropriately assess and apply value for certain things. And I just wonder if we're not any better, because Jesus himself said, what does it profit you if you gain the entire world and forfeit your soul? What is the profit? And I wonder if there's not some diabolical deceiver who's come and holds up nice, shiny, sparkly things and says, these monies are so much better than the gift that he's offering. Go at that. And, and it's such a mark of immaturity because you think about all the things we have time for. We have time for ballet, for beach, for ball. We have time for everything. But then when it comes to church, well, we don't have time for that. And the question is, are you appropriately valuing the things that actually matter? Or have you been deceived? 
and are selling cheaply. So intellectually, we have to grow. But another thing is think about emotionally. You know, one of the funny things about kids is they can get so panicky so quickly. And I went, it, would be, it would be fascinating to do a, uh, like if you could be invisible and could do a sociological experiment where you could come, not tomorrow because there's no school tomorrow, FYI parents, no school tomorrow. But if you could come on Tuesday and like sit right here when the fifth grade girls are having lunch. And you could just, with a little clipboard, just jot down, what are the fifth grade girls talking about during lunch? I mean, you would have, I mean, the mouths would be going. You would hear, I wonder what they're actually saying. What are they talking about? And then I wonder if you then took and you went over to the Nemours cafeteria when all of the nurses were down on their lunch shift and you listened to the, I wonder how much different would the conversation be? I wonder if there would be a sense in both places of emotional instability or um, applying, you know, taking things out of context and blowing things up that shouldn't be uh, blown up. You know, think volitionally. You know, one of the (laughs) big challenges at our home right now is what's the appropriate response? So I think the thing I say, we say more than any other thing throughout the day is, um, yes, that was wrong. He or she did X, but it was also wrong that you responded Y. What's the appropriate response? Yes, I, I know she stuck her tongue out to you and called you a ninny head. You cannot hit her with a plastic bat. That is not the appropriate response. See, learning what is the approach, I wonder how much better we are, because I wonder if somebody else could look at us and say, yeah, I, I know they cut you off in traffic, but that's not the appropriate response. I know your ne- neighbor violates the HOA and leaves their trash can out too long, but that's not the appropriate response. I wonder if we're much better. You think about judgment. You know, one of the things kids do is they judge by appearances. You know, it's the appearances that uh, they're so fixated on. And we're not much better. And that's what, what Samuel says to the Israelites when they wanted to lift up Saul because he was a head taller and looked stronger. He says, we, we judge by appearances, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. One of these kids, their judgment's not good because they don't see danger. They're just not aware of the danger around them. Uh, we have, in our family, one of our local heroes is Miss Brenda. And uh, Miss Brenda is the crossing guard who helps the kids cross right over, right over here. And if you've ever seen Miss Brenda, Miss Brenda owns that intersection. So if you're driving to work while the kids are crossing, that is Miss Brenda's world, and she has laws, and you obey or you face the consequences. And we love it because she's going to take ownership of the children to keep them safe. And we had on Friday, one of the little kids was just off in la-la land, just about to walk through, and Miss Brenda owned the moment and stopped the children. But they just they can't see the danger, so you need someone to almost be like a siren to alert you to the danger. But one of the challenging things is I don't know if we get much better at that. Like, you actually need a concha, a Miss Brenda type in your conscience so where you're on Facebook and all of the sirens of the danger, you're about to be sucked into the vortex of wasting time, of coveting, of being trapped into this, this world. There's danger. And so we're often not much better at being able to see it. And the last thing here, all you dads who've ever gone on a 
on a trip know the first thing the kids say when you come back home, what is it they say? What'd you bring me? What'd you bring me? One of the marks of you know, just immaturity is you love the gifts you know, more than the giver. So I was like, well, you know, I just brought you myself. Oh, man. Oh, I brought you a stuffed pig with a chocolate heart in its mouth. Oh, wow. He's the greatest dad ever. You know, why? It's you love the gifts more than the giver. But I wonder how much better we are. You know, one of the dominant theologies in America right now is a prosperity gospel that loves the gifts of God, but might not necessarily care much about the person and presence of God. So you love the gifts and not the giver. It's a mark of immaturity. So as you look at you see all of these things. I mean, these things aren't necessarily marks just of children. We can see all of ourselves in all of these. So what's the energy? How does he unleash? And what stability does he give? Where can we find growth and life? And it really, I think it comes from the, the concept of living in the shadow of the cross. Because remember what? Jesus said, think about a seed. Unless a seed is planted in the ground and dies, it won't bear any fruit. So there has to be some type of death first before growth can happen. And what the, the, the logic is, Christ died, he rose again, and now he's pouring out the gifts that can bring us to a place of Maturity. He's giving us the means for our growth. In essence, no growth happens unless it follows that death, burial, resurrection pattern. It's what we celebrate and symbolize at every baptism, that you've been buried in death with Christ and now you rise again to new life. But growth really only happens if you follow that baptismal pattern a thousand times every day. You know, if you really want to grow, it doesn't happen by taking a thousand selfies a day. It happens by taking a thousand baptismal movements a day. We're very small, death to myself, rising to something else. Death to this, rising to that. It's every day dying in a little way so someone else can live. And what happens is you begin to grow. You begin to grow downwards in humility and upwards in praise. Your faith begins to grow because it becomes firm and strong. You begin to grow because you're beginning to exercise your love and care and kindness for others. And then you begin to see that the quality of your human relationships is the index of your relationship with God. And your life, it's out of the death comes life. And it happens in a hundred just small ways each day of offering your body as a living sacrifice where you place your life, your ambitions, your desire on the altar, and then something else rises. And actually go back through the list and think about how the gospel can transform all of these things. You know, you can have every bit of the energy but now it can be transformed and, and, and channeled and funneled in a right way where God then gives the energy and you can serve in the grace and the strength that he supplies. You can have stability. Think about the, not just the physical, the emotional, the spiritual stability that you can have. Because one of the most powerful gifts of the gospel is you have access to a joy that can't be shaken or taken. You know, in this life, naturally, uh, when things are good, we are happy. When things are bad, we are sad. But in the gospel, even when things are bad, you can still be happy. It's the most amazing transformation. It's how Paul can be in a prison, unjustly accused, being beaten, and then still sing praises because he has access to a joy that cannot be shaken. It's so 
stable. And think about the understanding you get. You begin to respond appropriately to people and places and things. You grow in patience and you grow in gentleness. You know, the constant need you have for stimulation, you begin to be able to have settledness and peace. And you think about that one, I've been thinking all week about that, that middle one and one, the exhibitionism, and how the gospel can, can free you from that compulsive need and what it can do for you. When we were preaching through John last year, got kind of hung up on John the Baptist as just this incredible model of just health. Someone who was just healthy. Who he first he knew, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Savior. I'm not the one who's gonna fix the world and fix you and fix all of these things. I am not the Christ. So healthy. But then he also knew that he must increase and I must decrease. And living that life of exalting Christ, lowering self, is just health. It's like, how do you get there? You know, I like to kind of poke fun at the selfie phenomenon, but the more I think about it, the more I think, well, just, all right, what's going on? What's happening in the human heart that is crying out over a thousand times a day saying, look at me, look at me? What's happening in the heart? And I just think we do, we live in a world that's so dehumanizing, where people feel that we're unseen. We're not acknowledged, not represented, not known, and crying out to be, to be noticed, to be affirmed, to be loved. In some way, it's a representation of such deep desires and longings. It's one of the things we're crying out for in a world that's so depersonalized. I saw a, a fascinating wrap-up. I saw a fascinating talk this week that's just kind of, I don't quite know how to conceptualize it with some Andy Crouch at the Q conference. And uh, he did this brilliant survey of kind of intellectual history where he talked about the depersonalizing way that our the revolution in banking, the revolution in work, the revolution in communications has brought us to a place of such a depersonalized world. And then he anchored in in Romans 16. In Romans 16, the verse, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, Greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is a host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus. He, he, he had a little, just this meditation on the phrase, I, Tertius. So you think, we live in such a profoundly dehumanizing world, but it's not the only time the world's ever been that way. And you can go back into the Greco-Roman world. Do you know what Tertius means? It means third. I, third, greet you. Do you know why his name was third? Because he was a slave. And he wasn't, they didn't even bother to give him a name. They're just, you're the first, you're the second, you're the third. And I, Quartus, you know what that means? That means fourth. That's Roman for four. You're four. You're not even a person. You're a number. He was a slave. He was an emanuensis, which means he would write basically what we would think of a scribe, but not a scribe. He would follow around a rich, noble person and take down their dictations and send out their letters. He was seen as an object and as a tool and not a person. And then yet, could you imagine what it would have been like? And he just explained, what would it have been like for this person whose entire life was seen as an object and a tool, and then Paul gets done, and he's just writing down, doing his job, and then Paul says, Tertius, I, I see you. Say hello. And he said he gave him humanity and dignity. And I just wonder if there's not something just powerful about the reality of the gospel, that the reason why we're crying out for those things is because we were made in the image of God. And what the power of the gospel is to do in your life is to remake you in the image 
of Christ. So as we think about these things, that's what it means to move into a level of maturity. We want to move to those places. So as you look through all these, examine your own self and your own heart. Say, where are there still evidences of immaturity in me? And real quickly, as we think about this, because we're kind of going through Ephesians and we're having to do two things. We're, gonna, we're wanting to be true to the book of Ephesians, but we're also wanting to establish the systems and structures for our church. So as a church, we can move to a place of institutional maturity and have stability. And that's one of the key things Paul keys in here, that he wants you to move as a body to a place of maturity. So you can look through these things, and what's really kind of sad is a lot of these marks for immaturity in a person can also be seen in the the marks of a church. But as we move to a place, some of the things we need for institutional stability, we need to get our membership process in place. So one of the things we're trying to put together, and we want a, a, a corporate um, kind of covenant charter membership ceremony where everybody who's been here and, and sees themselves as a member of this church, we can kind of do a, a charter membership ceremony where we join the church and place the infrastructure for kind of the, the leaders, the elders, the deacons, the bylaws, these type things. Um, need to get those in place. Looking hopefully to do that sometime in November, maybe November 18th, have a special service for everyone. And so for you, if you feel that the Trinity is your home and you want to be a member, one of your responsibilities will be to look at the church covenant, kind of look at those things, and say, yes, I'm committing to be a part of this, this people in this place. Um, one of the things you can see here is the whole point is to equip the saints for the works of the ministry and the building up of the body. The way we want to see those things begin to happen, one of the works, one of the teams, and one way. And then there's other things just kind of need to put in place, some type of small group um, fashion. And then there's other things just kind of need to put in place, some different things for um, the structure and the shape of our life, our life as a church together. You know, one of the things we'll, we'll be needing soon, I don't know if you heard a couple weeks ago, but a big loud uh, pop during worship. Uh, that was our soundboard letting us know that it's really enjoyed the time it's spent with us, <laughs> but um, he's not going to be staying around much longer. And so, you know, I don't, if you were a, um, any like second, third children in, in the house, who always got hand-me-down clothes? Yeah, so, so you, can, you can understand this. It was a wonderful blessing that so many of the things we received were hand-me-downs. But at some point, you kind of got to get your own things. And so that's what we'll be needing to kind of raise money for things like soundboard and other things um, like that. So moving to a place where we can get to institutional stability. But there's no growth without life first. There's no growth without life. And there's no spiritual growth without spiritual life. And there's no spiritual life without spiritual birth. And so maybe you're here this morning and think, well, I don't don't know if I'm spiritually alive. I've never been spiritually born. And the way that happens is it begins in repentance and faith. So you think about it, you know, all kids know some simple words of please, sorry, thank you. And that's where spiritual life begins. It begins by looking at the Lord and saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way I've broken your laws, violated your ways, tried to bend my own Savior. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please forgive me for doing these things, and please save me. And thank you. Thank you for sending your son to pay the penalty for my sins on the cross. And thank you for sending your spirit for making me alive and new. That's where it all begins. And that's what we celebrate every week when we come to the Lord's table. So the Lord's table is our way of saying thank you. Thank you to the Lord for saving us and making us new and sending us what we need so we can grow 
and be strong. So this is the Lord's table, and it's open to anyone who uh, has confessed their sins and is, is trusting in Jesus to be their Savior. And we have four stations. The one in the back corner will be gluten-free, so if you have a gluten allergy, you can go there. And once our server's in place, you come.